Welcome to Hope Assembly of God Online. We believe no matter the journey, there is always hope. This is a recording of our live Sunday sermon, unedited, uncut, real. We began a new series last week on learning to lead from the book of Nehemiah. And I think that Nehemiah is one of the greatest leaders in in all of Scripture. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. Um, He was a a worker in the king's court. He held a high position as the cupbearer to one of the most powerful kings in the region, uh, Artaxerxes. And the cupbearer was an important job, and we kind of talked about this last week, in that what whatever the king was going to be drinking, the cupbearer drank it first. So if somebody wanted to poison the king, it would be the cupbearer that would die. Okay? And so it was a hugely important position. It was a, a position of trust. It was a position of responsibility. I would imagine that he had people that worked for him in this you know, office and in this realm in, in, which, in which he worked. And here he was in this high position, living the good life, and God touched his heart. And God touched his heart. You know, sometimes we can be so comfortable in how we're living that we're missing something more that God wants to accomplish in our lives. Because the goal of the Christian life is not comfort. The goal of the Christian life is to bring glory to God. And, you know, we all say it, and we've heard these different things. I just want to be comfortable. I want to make enough money to be comfortable. I think God looks at it a little bit differently. He looks at it sometimes that we have so much money that we're not living the godly life that he would want us to live. You see, the American dream is different than God's dream for you. And there's nothing wrong with having money. I'm voting for more of it for myself. I'm not saying don't have money. I hope that you're blessed beyond all measure, okay? and that your bank accounts are overflowing. I I really do. I hope they do. But I hope that doesn't keep you from serving God. That's all. Because serving God is what matters. Now, since I've been at this church, I've done, I don't know, 125 funerals, maybe more, uh, whatever the case is. And I've found everybody brings the same thing with them. And that would be nothing. So whether you're Jeff Bezos or Randy Sabella, we're bringing the same with us. The difference is, is I'm hoping that by serving God, there's something waiting for me there. See, because we store up our treasures, not here on earth, because they're left behind, but in, in glory. And we do that by serving God. And so we also established last week that all of us are called to be leaders in one way or another. Even if we're only leading our own lives, we're, we're called to be leaders. And I shared a little bit of my leadership journey and, you know, 40 years of, of leading, and I'm still learning. Every day I'm learning something new because life is too complex. People are too complex to be able to just, you know, you know fit the, the round peg in the round hole is easy. Life is not like that. You've got to figure out how to fit that round peg in a square hole. You know, that's the complication of uh, leadership in our day. So here we have Nehemiah, and we're learning to lead from him. But in order to fully understand what's going on in Nehemiah's life and what he's leading to, I'm going to give you an overview of the whole Old Testament in less than five minutes. So I'm going to save you a whole semester of Bible college and the money 
of that, and I'm going to give you a whole overview of the Old Testament. So if you ever are reading Scripture and you look at the Old Testament and you just don't kind of get it, after today you're going to get it a little bit more. You'll have a little better understanding of it and where Jesus fits in and all of that. Okay. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Okay. I only have 66 more books to go through. No, I'm just kidding. Then he created Adam and Eve, right? And Adam and Eve had sons. Cain killed Abel, right? Isn't that interesting? When sin entered the world, murder entered the world shortly after that because the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Anyway, so after that, the world got so wicked that God decided to destroy the earth with the flood, but he uh, chose Noah to be the one that he would save, and then his family would uh, grow from there. Then after the flood and after Noah, the, it, it was declared, be fruitful and multiply and spread out throughout the earth. That was God's known will. What did the people do? The exact opposite of God's will. They decided they were all going to stick together, and they thought, let's build a tower in our name, and they built the Tower of Babel, Right? They weren't interested in giving glory to God. They wanted to receive the glory. In fact, it literally says to make a name for ourselves. And so the Tower of Babel, they were working on this. God looked down and said, this is not going to work. And so I'm going to divide your languages. And that's when languages came into the world. And so they're working and all of a sudden they don't understand each other. They got together in groups of people and then they spread out. From those groups of people, God chose Abraham to be the father of a great nation, which ultimately was Israel. And we're in Genesis still, okay? I'm not going through all 66 books, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're in Genesis still. From, from Abraham, who was an old man, and Sarah, uh, they had Isaac, a miracle birth. At a, you know, 100 years old, whatever it was. Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph. Joseph became the most powerful man in the world do you know why he was the most powerful man in the world? He had the food. Whoever controls the food is the most powerful person. Because even more than money, you need food. And so he controlled the food and people would come to him. And he was blessed in, because of his faithfulness to God. Then they were going through a famine. Joseph brought his family into Egypt. All right? And this is where we pick up in Exodus. After Joseph died and they forgot about Joseph, they put the Israelites in bondage. And they were slaves for 400 years until Moses was raised up. And Moses became God's person to deliver their people. That's Exodus. Okay? And then he led the people right to the point of the promised land. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But no, Moses wasn't the one to bring them into the promised land. That was who? Joshua. That's Joshua, that book. And so he won the victories. Then after Joshua came the judges. And I can't get into all that. That was a cycle of their rebellion against God and God's deliverance. Then after judges came Samuel. And Samuel was the one to anoint the first king because they wanted a king like all the other nations. Remember that? And who was the first king of Israel? Saul. And how was he? He started good and ended bad, right? It's how, you, it's how you finished that's important. Yeah, he started really good and ended very, very bad. Then after Saul, who became the king? David was the greatest king 
of Israel, and it's through his line that the Messiah would come. That's why God said, your uh, kingdom will reign forever. It wasn't that David would live forever, it's that his line would live forever through Jesus. Okay, then after David was Solomon, okay, wisest man ever to live, okay, and then after Solomon, what happened? This is the tricky part. Yeah, the nation divided, okay? And they divided into the north and the south, 10 tribes to the north. That was called Israel. So if you're reading the prophets in the Old Testament, you have to know which country they're talking to because it's a different situation based on where they're at. So there was Israel and then there was Judah, which is where Jerusalem was. And Jeroboam led the north. And here's how I remember Jeroboam. He was a jerk. So Jeroboam the jerk, okay? He started his own religion. That's never a good thing, okay? I'm going to recommend to you uh, today, uh, don't start your own religion, okay? So he started his own religion anyway, and, and they fell away from God completely. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. The nation was divided, and then because they were weakened because of their disobedience, Babylon, who were the bad guys that came from Babel, you see, the, is, the people of people of God set in motion all of the things that happened to them. When they wanted to make a name for themselves, they set in motion what would happen to them. And for you Bible scholars out there, what is, what is the name of the world's system in the book of Revelation? Babylon. See? It's Babylon that will be destroyed. Okay? Not the location, but the spirit of Babylon. Anyway, you can ponder that later. So they get taken away from the promised land. They're exiled to Babylon where they lived for many years. Okay? And then they were allowed to go back home to the promised land. Now I'm almost there. Now watch this. When they left Babylon, when they were no longer exiled, there were three guys. The first one you'll have to spell at the end of the service. I don't know if this is how you pronounce it, but I always called them Zerubbabel. Okay? Is that how you say it, Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, we're going to go with one of those. That guy was in charge of rebuilding the temple. Then Ezra, which is the book right before Nehemiah, he led the people to rebuild their spiritual lives. And Nehemiah, that's where we're at now. The people had fallen away from God. They faced the judgment of God because of their disobedience. They were taken from the promised land, which was everything to them. Do you notice they're still fighting over the promised land? I'm just saying. And so they were taken back. Zerubbabel led them to rebuild the temple. Ezra to rebuild their spiritual lives. Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. All right? So now we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1. You can turn there in your Bible or on your phone. Nehemiah. You know what's nice on your phone? You don't have to flip through not knowing where it's at. You just hit Nehemiah, and that's, that's kind of a nice thing. You know what's even better on your phone? When you get to be my age, you can make the letters as big as you want. That's even better. I don't know if you noticed, but I transitioned from uh, paper notes to on my tablet uh, because I can make the letters as big as I need them to be, and that's just the, just the way it goes. In the studio, and I'm saying this as you're turning there, in the studio that we have, I have multiple monitors, but how we have it set up with the table, I can't see the little monitor. So I have a 55-inch TV that I read off of for the broadcast because I just can't see it 
anymore. It happens, all right? It happens. How many do not wear glasses or contacts? Just a few of you. You'll get it. You'll understand someday. Most of you are young yet. Sorry, Melissa. I mean, Kelly was picking on you. I figured I'd pick on you too. All right, Nehemiah 1.4, watch. These are the memoirs of, uh, uh, of Nehemiah and so on and so forth. Verse 2, Hananiah, one of the brothers, uh, came to visit me with some of the other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned from their captivity. See, I just explained all that to you. They returned from their captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah, which included Jerusalem. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, walls in that day, I mean, they're important to us now, but in that day, it was the walls that protected the nation against other nations. But not only did it protect them from being overrun, to not have a wall to protect your nation meant, what kind of nation are you? You don't even have walls for your nation. You're supposed to be the people of God. You keep talking about God and you build a temple and you're going and you're worshiping God, but you don't even have walls. You're easy pickings. It's just a matter of time. And so not having the walls was not just for protection. It was against the glory of who God was. That was the real issue there. And ultimately, that's what broke Nehemiah's heart. How can the people of God not have the wall to protect them? How can they bring trouble and disgrace to themselves? Something has to be done. You become a leader when you see something that has to be accomplished. And you take the initiative to get it done. That's when you become a leader. And it happens at different times and in different places and sometimes in different stages of life. But when God shows you something that needs to be taken care of and you say, I'll be the one to do this, you become the leader in that situation. And whether it's in your family, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's in the community or whatever place, wherever it is that you see the need and God puts it on your heart to meet that need, you become the leader. And that's why we need to learn to lead. And so what troubled Nehemiah was that his nation was in trouble and disgrace and it broke his heart. One of the ways we can find out what's inside of us is what breaks our heart. What breaks our heart? What brings us to our knees? What brings us to tears? That's how we know where our passion is. That's also where we know uh, our leadership is going to be. I love the church of Jesus Christ. That's why God called me to be a pastor. Or he called me to be the pastor and gave me a love, however it worked out. But I love the church of Jesus Christ. I've always loved the church. I was born into the church. I was the first child born into the new church building where my mom still attends, 1966. They hadn't even finished the building. I say I've been going to church since my mom was this big. And our church then had difficulties Churches I've been a part of, pastoring, youth pastoring, whatever, have had difficulties. There's been times where things have gone well and times where things didn't go well. And there were times where people were kind, gracious, and loving. And there were times where they were critical, mean, and evil. That's church. Okay? Thankfully, we don't have evil people here. 
That's a little joke. We have good people here. I'm just throwing that out. I had to think which of those three I was going to know. But, you know, it, it happens within the church, and you have two options. Am I going to love what Jesus loves, or am I going to hate what Jesus loves? And here's how much Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. And so I choose to love the church, and I love this church. I couldn't be more thankful that God called me here to this town that I had never heard of in my whole life. But God knew. And he prepared me all along the way. And so my passion is for the church. And what breaks my heart is for the church and, you know, our church and the church in general. I want it to be all that God wants it to be so that we can fulfill our purpose on this earth and for us in, the, on this, in this nation. See? And so that's where your passion's at. Where is your passion at? That's where God is leading you. The surrounding nations wanted to destroy Israel. And so here's Nehemiah, broken heart, wept, and now he is going to be responsible to be the leader. Okay, and this is the, the, the thing. Let me tell this story. There was a great basketball coach by the name of Pat Riley. How many have heard of Pat Riley? Oh, oh, good. Better than I thought. Mostly men, but there's some women. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I'll just let it go there. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to mention the handbags that I know. I know four handbags. I can't say that. I just want to know that I can relate to everybody. Handbags. Louis Vuitton. Coach. Michael Kors. Kate Spade. That was the fourth one. I know four. So there you go. See, I understand a lot of different things in there. Anyway, Pat Riley, great basketball coach. He coached, where did he coach and win most of his championships? LA. The Lakers. Showtime. Magic Johnson, that whole crew. Great coach. Coached the Knicks, had great teams with uh, Patrick Ewing, all of that. Went to the Heat, won a championship with Shaquille O'Neal with the Heat. Great coach. They asked him what one of the keys to success is in coaching. And here's what he says. And this is the point of the message. One of the keys is you have to keep the main thing the main thing. Or he said it more, uh, with more uh, redundancy. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so I'm taking that and we're going to go on this idea of keeping first things first. And so I asked the question, and you know the answer. Nehemiah has passion for his people. They were in trouble. It was a disgrace to them and to God. His heart was broken he was a leader already. What was the first thing he did? He prayed. Isn't that interesting. He didn't gather a group around him to get their opinions on what needed to be done. He didn't uh, uh, make an assessment of the damage. He didn't travel there with an entourage, and he didn't make an assessment. He didn't draw blueprints first, and he didn't uh, write down the pros and cons of getting involved in, in this. He didn't write out a step-by-step -step plan. All of those things, good. All of those things he might have done next. But first, he prayed. And when you become a leader in a situation that's bigger than you, your first step has to be prayer. Because it might be bigger than you, but it's not bigger than him. And if you don't go to him first and everywhere in between, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. As a leader, in your home, family, job, church, whatever situation you're involved in, community, schools, 
wherever you're a leader, if your first step isn't to go to God, then you're going to be in trouble. Cyril Barber said this, a self, the self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray because they have no basis in which to approach God. A true leader is one who is not self-sufficient. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that go against popular thought? The true leader, the godly leader, is the one who is not self-sufficient, is not self-satisfied, or is not self-righteous. On the contrary, the true leader knows his need and is ready to humble himself before the one who alone is sufficient to meet that need. It's about humility. Nehemiah knew the job was too great for him, but not too great for him. And your situation might be too great for you, but it's not too great for God. And so Nehemiah prays. I'm going to walk you through his prayer, and I'm going to use an acronym to show you how to pray. Okay? The acronym is A-C-T-S, ACTS. Okay? I'm just going to walk you through each part of it. The first thing that Nehemiah did was adoration. He, he expressed adoration. He adored his God. Then I said, now this is right after his brothers come. First thing first, main thing, main thing. The first thing he does is pray. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer, look down and see me praying night and day for your people of Israel. What does he talk about first in his prayer? Not his needs, but about God. True prayer always begins with God and not with us. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, how did it begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then it gets to give us this day. But there's a lot of attention focused on God first. And in your prayers as a leader, your first part of your prayer life needs to be adoration towards God and his nature and in his character. And I'll give you some of God's attributes that, that Nehemiah just lists as he's praying. And I think, I think it just comes out of him because he has a relationship with God. Okay? Uh, God, your, your, your sovereignty. Great and awesome God, he says. God's love. Your love is unfailing. These are his words. You keep your covenant and commands. You are a faithful God. You have the ability to see and hear all that is going on. And he says, look down and see me praying. Adoration is rehearsing the attributes of God. Now, here's a funny little thing. It seems childish, but it's actually not. It's very important and very uplifting and worshipful. And I call it the ABCs of God. And sometimes at night, if I can't sleep, or other times where I just, my mind is going like this and got all these things going on, and, and uh, I just begin to think of the attributes of God A, B, C, D, all the way through. And I don't know if I've ever gotten a good X or not, okay? But the rest of them, he's an awesome God. He's a benevolent God. He's a caring God. He's excellent in all that he does. He's forgiving. He's gracious. Do you understand? 
What are we doing? We're taking our mind off of our needs and what we're going through, and we begin to put our mind on the one that can take care of us when no one else can. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was already great. He was powerful and wealthy. He was right next to the king. But when he was hit with his passion and chosen for leadership, the first thing he did was pray. And how did he pray first? He gave glory and honor to God, and we'll call that A, adoration. Secondly, he confessed. He confessed. In verse 6b, it says, I confess that we have sinned against you, yes, even my own family, and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. What is sin? Sin's very simple. It's disobeying God. That's it. Well, I don't know if that's a sin. Was it disobeying God? I just think that Scripture is so clear that it's just an excuse to say we don't know what God wants. Love God and love your neighbor with no other agenda. That's obeying his commands. You take the Ten Commandments, five and five. First five, love God. Second five, love your neighbor. What did Jesus say? Greatest commandment, love God. What's next? Love your neighbor. And everything flows from that. In fact, the principle of that, of love, is greater than do unto, greater than the golden rule. Do you realize that? The golden rule in the Old Testament, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Treat others like you want to be treated. There's even something greater. It's called love. Love with no agenda. So sin is anything that breaks the bond of love between you and God and you and your neighbor and you and your spouse and you and your children. It's that intentional and sometimes unintentional breaking of God's commands. So we deal, let me deal with the unintentional real quick. Whether I know gravity exists or not, if I jump off the roof of the church like the highest peak where the cross is there, I'm going to hit the ground and suffer the consequences. There are laws and principles in place. Whether you believe it or not, I don't believe, I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity, nothing's going to happen to me. Okay? Goes right along with that group that only eats kale. They don't believe in gravity. So, boy, you picked your head up. Where's Gail? Is Gail here? C- can you tell her I threw a shot at her, though? Gail, Gail writes on our Faith Life page for the sandwich thing after we had gorged ourselves on Italian hose. She writes, Can I bring a kale wrap? <laughs> I laughed. Of course I said no, but I did laugh. Anyway, uh, but whether you believe in gravity or whether you eat kale or not, sin is sin. And the, God's principles are the, the, the same, okay? The same. And so, but most of the time, we know when we're doing wrong. And so, when we're praying, confession needs to be a big part of it. Now, let me break it down a little further. Watch. He prays for the sins of his nation, that maybe he didn't even commit. If we're going to talk about the Old Testament, probably the greatest sin of disobedience that the Israelites committed was was idolatry. They kept worshiping foreign gods, and God told them over and over again. You know, the first commandment, second commandment. That's the basis of everything. Don't worship other gods. Have no other graven images. And yet, what do they do? Not all adults here. Let me think, because this is important. The same thing in our nation. Oh, I think I can say it like this. And the reason they began 
worshiping idols so often is because they intermarried. And the foreign brought in their gods and the guys were more concerned with their pants than they were in giving glory to God. So if they had to exchange their pants for pagan gods, they were willing to do it. If you get that, you get that. If you're too young to understand, perfect. You're welcome, parents. <laughs> but that's what it always boils down to. Look at our nation. We want to live in immorality. We want to do whatever we want to do. We want to operate in any way we feel is appropriate. We want to com completely go against God's will. And then we wonder why our nation is the way that it is. And so Nehemiah confesses the sins of the nation. He says, I'm a part of this nation, and I confess our sins to you. Listen, we could list the sins of our nation forever, because there's a lot of them. But, but we should. And we should take responsibility for our own part of it as well. The second thing he confesses is his family's sins. Now, this is gonna, might get a little personal, but I want you to know that I'm not thinking of any one person. I'm using a big generality to make this point, okay? Imagine that there was an alcoholic in your family and that alcoholic caused a lot of pain and problems for the family. It's important for you to acknowledge that sin as part of your family and to confess that sin to God. Not that you were the alcoholic, but your family has been devastated because of the alcohol, alcoholism in your family. And so you confess it. And here's why you confess it. Because you're no longer keeping it hidden. You're bringing it into the light. And in the light there's healing. When you, and I'm not saying you confess this to everybody. Oh, my, you know, my mother, father, son, daughter. I, no. What I'm saying is before God, God, our family has been ravaged by alcohol. And I confess this before you. And God, I've experienced pain in my own life. And God, I've gone too far in my own life. Please forgive me and forgive my family. Now, I'm going to tell you this, too. We don't believe in generational curses. We believe that every generation has a choice. We don't believe in generational curses because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to break whatever has happened in your family, and you can be the one to make a difference for the next generation. Generational curse can be an excuse. Well, I didn't have a choice. It's in my family. You have a choice. Alcoholism for insurance purposes is a disease. But before God, it's a sin. And that's why it says no drunkards will enter the kingdom of God. You can read it for yourself in the New Testament. That's why Paul said, do not be drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. If there wasn't a choice in there somewhere, then we wouldn't be held responsible. But every time that person would leave his family at night and go to a bar and get fall down drunk and come home and be hurtful towards his family. That was a choice he made every single time. And there's a lot of pain and hurt that goes with that. And here's where the confession is. Not that you did it, but you've been affected by it. Oh God, my family has sinned against you, but I thank you for the blood of Jesus that can break these bondages. And I thank you that you're going to use me as a leader in the family, that it's not going to be passed on from generation to generation. This is going to stop with me. And that's why it says the sins of the fathers are passed on for generations, but the blessings of, to the godly are for thousands upon thousands of years. 
because Jesus can break those bondages and he can do it in your life. If we're using an excuse and not confessing what's real, then we never have victory because it's in the darkness and not in the light. All right. And this, I used alcoholism. There are other things, abuse, cruelty, abandonment, you know, any kind of evil uh, can be there. Confess, get it out to God. You don't have to tell everybody about everything in your life. In fact, I wouldn't recommend that. But you're not keeping this from God, and, and, and you're keeping yourself from the healing he wants to provide because you're not bringing it into his light. And then personal sin, and we all have them, and it's a long list of what our personal sins are. But sometimes confession of personal sins begins with an understanding of the harvest we're reaping now. I used to think that there were only certain seasons of our lives that were harvest time. Every day is harvest time. What you planted back then, you're reaping the harvest of now. If you planted good and obedience, then you're reaping blessings. If you did evil and wrong, then you're reaping the rewards of that. Every season, every day is harvest time. And sometimes we have to be, sorry, I just kind of stray forward. We have to be man or woman enough to admit that we screwed up. And that the reason we're in the situation that we're in is because we did it. Because there's no confession, there's no healing without that. We have to admit it before God. And then all of a sudden, I'm telling you, I know how this works. All of a sudden when we confess our sins before God, that load you were carrying, that burden that you were carrying comes off your shoulders. Because forgiveness flows in the light and not in the darkness. He confessed his sins. T is he gave thanks. And I I won't read 8 through 10. You can see it. Thank you, God, for being faithful and keeping your covenant is basically what it says. So we move from adoration. God, you're, you're magnificent. You're sovereign and faithful and loving to confession. I'm not any of those things, God. Who I'm a part of, what I'm a part of, and who I am as a person is not any of those things. And Lord, I give thanks that you keep your covenant. Here's simple. How many have, my apologies to anybody. No, 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 let me think of another thing. Well, have you ever filled out legal documents? That In your mind it should be simple, but it's 10 pages of words you don't understand. Put together in a way that you know you didn't put it together. And just sign here. And then you go to claim whatever you thought was your right. And it's like, oh, no, here it says no. You know, in the fine print. You get that. It's very complicated. Very, very complicated life. My mom, who's 91 years old, I say, what's different? She said, life was harder when I was growing up. We didn't have the conveniences, but it was a lot simpler. She says, life is very complex now. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? Can I tell you about the covenant of God? It's as easy as this. And there's no fine print. Obey equals blessing. Disobey equals judgment. That's God's covenant. If you obey my commands, you will receive the blessings of God. If you disobey my commands, you will receive judgment. And that's what Israel went through. You disobeyed the known will of God. You know how long he, he waited till he had Babylon take them over? And even that was cleansing judgment because he wanted them to get right with him. And they weren't doing it on their own. You know how 400 years of prophets, of miracles. 
He didn't one day just say, hey, you did this, boop, done. No, it was generations, 400 years, 10 generations of falling away from God. And so there's no fine print in God's commands. And here's the deal. When we obey, he keeps his part. And if the covenant is broken, it's never on his side. It's always on our side. And we give thanks to his faithfulness. Now, here's the good news, because we've all broken the covenant. He's faithful even when we're not. And he's faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be forgiven and we can be set free no matter what we've done in the past. And when that happens, we just give thanks to him. We say, thank you, God, for keeping your covenant. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you have given me. Thank you, Lord, that you work in my life in spite of me. Thank you that you're a great and mighty God and I am none of those things. Thank you. All right, now watch. Watch. Sometimes our prayers can be this. God, here's what I need. Do this. What Nehemiah was saying is, God, I don't want my will. I want your will. And so it's like this. God, do my will. Or this. I want to do God's will. So when we're praying, watch how this works. If we begin with adoration, confession, and thanksgiving... By the time we get to S, which is supplication, which is a fancy word for saying presenting our needs to God, by the time we get to S, we're asking for different things. You see how that works? We're not asking for the simple things, or not the simple things, we're not asking for the things that don't matter, because they've all been filtered through the awesomeness of God. So all of a sudden we begin praying for our own needs, and we're praying the will of God. Because it's taken us from selfish beings to someone that's focused on the supreme God. And looking at his attributes and saying, you know what I thought I needed is really not what I needed, God. In fact, I'm realizing now through adoration, through confession and thanksgiving, I'm realizing now your will's better than mine. God, would you, would you help me fulfill your will? And that's the prayer that's answered every time. Because you're praying according to his will. Isn't that what scripture teaches? The problem is not that God doesn't want to answer our prayers. The problem is we're not in the place that he can answer those prayers. It's, it's given a little kid, you know, a five-year-old, a, a Ferrari. They wouldn't know what to do with it. They're not at that place that they can receive that. I shouldn't have said Ferrari. We'll just say any car. That, that's a little high end. I have Ferrari on my mind today. But anyway, uh, but because they're not ready. It's the same thing in our lives. God wants to bless us, and not just financially, but in many more areas, more important. But we're just not there yet. But watch how these steps will help bring us to the place where then God can answer our prayers because our prayers have changed when we focus on him. And that's what Nehemiah did. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers, verse 11, of those that delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. After he had adored God, worshipped God, after he had confessed his sins of the nation, family, and his personal sins, after he had thanked God for his faithfulness, then he presents his desires. And God, my desire is that the king would show favor to me 
so that I can be the leader you've called me to be. My desire is that the king would show favor to me, that I can fulfill your purposes and your plan and not my own. And we'll see in a couple weeks that God answered that prayer. Proverbs 21.1, and I'll close sort of with this. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Artaxerxes was a ridiculously powerful king in that region, and he was ruthless. He killed his brothers to get to that position. That's how ruthless he was. And if Nehemiah came to him and said, hey, I want to go back to my nation and rebuild the walls, you mind helping pay for it? He could have died instantaneously. Uh, that's a no. Fellows, boop, ushers. <laughs> you know? He said, I need favor. And he prayed for it and he asked for it and God gave it to him. All right. You're all facing something and I'm facing things that are bigger than who I am. But be assured they're not bigger than who God is. And what do we do when we're faced with situations that are bigger than we are? The first thing we do is we go to God. And we don't start with all of our needs and problems. We start with who he is. God, you are awesome. Even if it is that little simple ABCs, whatever it is that gets your mind off of yourself and onto him, and you reflect on how great he is, then you realize, wow, I, as Isaiah 6, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am a, with a people of unclean lips. Lord, our nation is broken. We're living the consequences of our own evil choices. Heal our nation. Lord, my family has things in our past that have wreaked havoc and caused pain. Lord, I confess that to you. And Lord, my own sin. I'm reaping the harvest of my own choices and my own decisions. Lord, would you forgive me? And then he forgives. And then we say, God, you are faithful to keep your word. You are faithful to keep your covenant. And now that I'm thinking about it, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I'm not asking you to bless my will I'm asking you, Lord, I want to be part of your will. And he answers that. Pat Riley, great basketball coach. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And for us as godly leaders, the main thing is prayer. And to keep our relationship with God first and foremost and before anything else. And all God's people said. Thank you for listening to Hope Online Podcast. For more information about Hope Assembly of God, go to www.godgivesyouhope.com or download our app in the App Store.